0: The in-house counsel office at Wells Fargo must have been surprised when the U.S. Occupational Safety and Health Administration issued an order for $22 million in back fees to a former employee plus attorney's fees. This important development in OSHA whistleblower law is going to be the topic of our next episode. This is the September 21, 2022 episode of the OSHA 3030. I'm Manish Rath. Welcome to the OSHA 3030. I'm Manish Rath. I'm a lawyer at the law firm Keller and Heckman. My area of law that I focus on is the Occupational Safety and Health Act and other areas of law. And I'm joined today by my colleague, Taylor Johnson. Taylor, thank you very much for joining us today.
1: It's a pleasure to be here, Manish. Thanks for having me.
0: So Taylor, as you know, we've got a great case today. I think the whistleblower area of the Occupational Safety and Health Act and the Occupational Safety and Health Administration's function in serving as the investigatory and adjudicatory body at the administrative level for whistleblower claims for over 22 different statutes is an often overlooked area of law. It's one that you and I represent organizations on, on an ongoing basis, I have several cases right now. And I think this is an important development just by virtue of the fact that this is an order to pay such a large sum, $22 million.
1: Yeah, certainly is.
0: Well, why don't we get into what we're going to talk about?
1: Yeah. So first, we're going to touch on um, the initial employee complaint uh, in this case, uh, the Wells Fargo case, and why this matters in OSHA law. Next, we're going to cover the facts of the employee's termination. Um, We'll then provide an overview of the elements of a whistleblower claim under both um, the Soxbane-Axley Act and the OSHA Act. And we're going to understand OSHA's investigation and order, provide a critical analysis of Wells Fargo's response to the uh, complaints that the employee made, and then as always, we'll wrap up with some practical takeaway action items, uh, what employers should do uh, given the Wells Fargo case.
0: Let me start by saying, Taylor, just to put this in context, you mentioned the Sarbanes-Oxley Act. That's the statute that's being forms the predicate for this whistleblower claim in the Wells Fargo case. There's 22 other statutes. We've covered this in prior uh, episodes of the OSHA 3030. We, we encourage you to check out all of the prior episodes, including those relating to the whistleblower claim provision. And OSHA's function under, uh, as as the adjudicatory and investigatory body for whistleblower claims under twenty two different statutes, Sarbanes Oxley being one of them, the Occupational Safety and Health Act being another, uh, being the first one, uh, and Section eleven C of the Occupational Safety and Health Act, and that I think that's why this case is of such informative value to the community of the OSHA thirty thirty, is because it gives an insight into some of the investigatory and deliberative processes of of the agency that also sits on whistleblower claims under the OSH Act, as well as the Sarbanes-Oxley Act. But what happened uh, historically was that the uh, process for creating a core of administrative law judges and the, the civil procedures, if you will, for processing a case and the investigation process before that was already so well refined under Section 11C by the Occupational Safety and Health Administration that when other statutes developed their own whistleblower provisions, like Sarbanes-Oxley, they forwarded statutorily the process to the Occupational Safety and Health Administration as the body that will conduct the initial intake, the investigation, and as well the opportunity to refer uh, matters to an administrative law judge under the Department of Labor. Now, this is interesting because some statutes vary in how they define what constitutes impermissible retaliation against a whistleblower. So the standard of law is different under all of these 22 statutes, and, and we've handled many of them. And uh, in addition, I'd say that the process itself that I just referenced is uh, slightly different for each. Some statutes, Congress uh, allowed for a kickout clause giving a claimant an opportunity to go through the investigatory body and then go straight to federal court if they wanted under what's called a kickout clause. Others compel the claimant to persist in the administrative process after the investigation and, and go through to uh, hearing before an administrative law judge. And so it's important to understand that all of these 22 statutes each have their own varied uh, and fascinating, equally fascinating nuances to them, and that as an attorney for management side who handles whistleblower retaliation claims, Taylor, you and I have to, make sure in each and every case that we're following the unique qualitative elements and procedural elements uh, of the statute that's being alleged in the claim, in that particular claim. So with that said, Taylor, why don't we talk about this particular case, which is a Sarbanes-Oxley case before an OSHA investigator.
1: Right, so there was a senior bank manager at Wells Fargo who was allegedly told to uh, try and make it look like the credit was so bad uh, to leave no paper trail, essentially falsifying, you know, allegedly falsifying customer information pertaining to uh, the credit declination of a potential customer. Uh, the employee was allegedly instructed to engage, you know, in a price fixing scheme uh, by his superiors. So, in, in response to this, the employee filed an internal complaint with the corporate ethics and fraud internal hotline. And his complaint was assigned to a senior corporate investigator. Important to point out here that this uh, corporate investigator was in-house at Wells Fargo. Same with the wholesale risk unit, also in-house at Wells Fargo, who then informed the internal investigator of of their opinion that no fraud had occurred in this matter. And the corporate case was then closed with no written explanation. Again, all in-house, no written explanation to support the risk unit's findings.
0: A common misperception, Taylor, in whistleblower law, and I don't believe that Wells Fargo operated under this misperception, but generally speaking, as you and I handle these kinds of cases, we see others will, will say things that reference a, a misperception that if the underlying claim turns out to be invalid, if an employee complained about something, but after an investigation, it turns out that the thing he was internally complaining about didn't turn out to be wrong, John, mm-hmm. then that would be a defense against retaliation. And it is not. In fact, the underlying claim can be completely false, and the corporation that's being complained of could have done nothing wrong, but may nevertheless, as a question of law, theoretically may have engaged in retaliation against an employee for making that complaint, whether meritorious or meritless or fraudulent, provided, of course, that it was done in good faith the employees protected under anti-retaliation provisions like the Sarbanes-Oxley Act or the OSHA Act, the C. Now, if the claim was indeed fraudulent then, or raised without good faith in the lack of good faith, then, then the employee may have walked away from the protections of an anti-retaliation provision. But that misperception persists as lawyers craft their defenses to retaliation claims at the client side and sometimes even at the uh, side. And so it's important to point that out. We hear it a lot. Well, with that said, so the employee in question who raised the complaint, it went all the way up, as you said, Taylor, through the internal investigative process and through the fraud claims unit. And they they came to the conclusion that Wells Fargo hadn't done anything wrong, or there wasn't at least any evidence of wrongdoing. Later on, the employee was terminated, and he was terminated for what Wells Fargo claimed was restructuring reasons. In the meantime, however, between the time of his complaint and his separation, he alleges that his reporting structure, if you looked at the organizational chart and his supervisor and supervisor, supervisor, et cetera, that it had changed and that that, that had resulted in an effective demotion, although not an actual demotion. Wells Fargo had changed the reporting structure for that employee as well as for several other employees in order to, it claimed, make sure that those employees didn't have to deal with the same working environment in which that employee, for example, made his complaint. The employee claims that that change in reporting structure was designed to ensure that the employee in future complaints would not raise complaints that reached upper management. So there's a cross allegations of the intent behind the change in structure. Uh, Wells Fargo said that it was a change in structure that was designed precisely to protect him from retaliation. In 2018, ultimately, as I said, uh, the employee was terminated. And when he was terminated, when he was informed, he was escorted by security. They were present when he packed up his box and they walked him out of the building. Wells Fargo claims that that was to make sure that as a financial institution, they wanted to make sure that he didn't take anything with him that was proprietary and belonging to Wells Fargo. And again, they claimed that that separation was due to a restructuring. When OSHA conducted its investigation, they believed that they had uncovered evidence that this method by which he was walked out the door was inconsistent with how others who were separated on the basis of a restructuring were managed. That difference, whether or not it's probative of retaliatory motive, is nevertheless something that I note that OSHA made a lot of sort of hay out of in its uh, a del- deliberative opinion. So the other point that they've raised in their opinion was, in their findings, was that uh, other employees, when they were restructured, they weren't separated out. They were given opportunities to burrow into various other departments in other uh, functions for which they were qualified, whereas he was restructured out the door. And that that inconsistency was something that raised a question in the mind of the investigator. Let's talk, Taylor, a little bit about the whistleblower process and the elements that have to be established in order to make a case for whistleblower retaliation.
1: Sure. To be clear, these are the elements under Section 11C of the OSH Act, which prevents an employer from retaliating against an employee because the employee engaged in protected activities. Some of these uh, protected activities can include filing a complaint, uh, causing an investigation testifying in an investigation or exercising a right related to the OSHA act or in this case the the Sarbanes-Oxley act and so we, we list the elements here um, there's sort of four elements that OSHA will look at when determining um, whether or not an employer has retaliated against an employee in terms of a whistleblower and so what they'll look at is first a protected activity so in this case it was filing a complaint second whether or not the employer had knowledge of the complaint um, OSHA found in this case um, that you know seniors uh, senior management superiors were made aware through the internal reporting hotline of the complaint the adverse action which in this case is obviously the termination of the employee and then and, and
0: argue Taylor, the adverse action he's alleging was also changing his reporting structure, resulting in an effective demotion, if not an actual demotion
1: exactly exactly great point and and then finally and this is where it's sort of the, you know the action lies um in in a lot of instances with these cases is is the causal nexus and so so was there a connection between the protected activity um, the complaint and the adverse action um, the termination
0: and in a lot of cases this is where the action is it's not enough to say yes i made an internal complaint and then at some point later i was terminated these right. two facts may have nothing to do with each other so the claimant is or the occupational safety and health administration's investigator is compelled to establish that the adverse action was motivated by the internal complaint, the protected activity. And, and in 11C, don't forget, it's not just an internal complaint. It could also be a refusal to work in unsafe conditions uh, or conditions that an employee has a reasonable good faith belief are unsafe and would result in the potential for imminent harm or danger.
1: Right, and so we, we touched on this, you know, this causal nexus, but we wanted to you know dig in a little bit more here. So essentially, one of the tests is, um, that that OSHA has developed recently, and that we actually covered um, a few months ago in the 3030 is but for the but for test. So but for the existence of the protected activity, uh, the employee would have suffered the adverse action. So for for 11C under the OSHA Act. And and then for the, for the Sarbanes-Oxley Act, OSHA looks for circumstances sufficient to raise the inference that protected activity was a contributing factor. Um, so essentially, you know, a lower bar here uh, for the Sarbanes-Oxley Act, it just needs to be a contributing factor in the adverse action versus 11C under the OSHA Act, where it needs to be uh, sort of the linchpin, you know, the butt for the existence of the protected activity, the adverse action would not have occurred. This
0: is an incredibly important distinction between what the OSHA investigator has to establish under 11C versus Servant's Zoxley and several of the other statutes, because it's easier to say that for the employer, for example, it's easier to say, well, maybe this one manager was motivated by a retaliatory motive, but several other managers weighed in on the restructuring plan and agreed. And they didn't know anything about the underlying internal complaint that the employee had raised or uh, they didn't have any any re- or they were also co-complainants so they couldn't have been motivated against him whatever for whatever reason that's very good evidence that even though there was one element that may have had a retaliatory motive that it was merely a contributing factor but that the termination would have occurred regardless under 11c and the but for analysis that would be insufficient to establish a violation because the question then would be, if it weren't for the retaliation, would he have been terminated? And in the scenario I, example I gave you, the answer would be no. The other managers would have voted for termination anyways, and they had no motive. There's no evidence of motive. And so so clearly, the retaliatory motive was not a but for one without the other uh, type of element in the decision. Mm-hmm. However, under sarbanes oxley it would be enough evidence to say that that one manager who, presented, who had a retaliatory motive, presented a significant contributing factor in the decision to terminate. Uh, and, and so in one statute, you'd find a violation, and in another statute, you may not. And I think that that's an incredibly important distinction that defense counsel representing corporations have to keep in mind when conducting their own internal investigation, coming to their own conclusions, as well as helping prepare an effective defense for whether or not uh, there was uh, good evidence of of retaliation or insufficient evidence of retaliation as a motive for a person who may have enjoyed some protection under a whistleblower provision of, of one of over 22 statutes covered by the Occupational Safety and Health Administration.
1: Right. And, and then in this case, um, you know, OSHA did find, um, so this case was brought under the sarbanes Oxley Act, and, and they found that Wells Fargo, that it was a protected activity. The complaint was a protected activity. It was a contributing factor in the adverse action. So it met that test. And then in terms of a defense, they found that Wells Fargo failed to show that it would have taken the same adverse action in the absence of the complaints. Um, so essentially meeting both tests, you know, but for the complaints, the employee would not have been fired. So that's why they had the grounds in their minds for issuing the $22 million. Dollar penalty.
0: And I should point out that this contributing factor standard is derivative of OSHA's own interpretation, its own guidance to its own inspectors, and that case law can later, as happened with the BUT4 test under 11C, as was happened with the BUT4 test that went all the way up to the Supreme Court under the Age Discrimination Act, et cetera, that this this could evolve through court driven statements of law as to what the appropriate standard should be. but But that the contributing factor language is derived from OSHA's own instructions to its inspectors on conducting inspections under the Sarbanes-Oxley Act, claims of, of whistleblower retaliation. Okay, so as we said at the beginning, after they've conducted their investigation, they issued a, a letter ordering. I say ordering, I should put it in, in quotes. Wells Fargo to pay $22 million in, in compensatory damages, fund pay, back pay, lost bonuses and benefits the time interest for, for lost pay, et cetera, plus a reasonable attorney's fees and litigation costs. And it ordered Wells Fargo to issue a posting, post a notice uh, on the walls of regular posting areas inside of their offices, notifying other employees of the violation. In its findings, it also ordered, provided Wells Fargo with a 30-day provision for filing subjections and noting its intent to have this matter heard by the Administrative law judge assigned to the case. Well, this is significant. And of course, we don't typically see these numbers when looking at whistleblower claims under the Occupational Safety and Health Acts, Section 11C. We do, however, see, in addition to significant monetary orders, we also see orders of restoration. And that may be one, perhaps the more bitter pill to swallow for employers is not just to pay a very large sum of money to a former employee, but then to bring that employee back into the ranks where there's no reasonable belief that the relationship is a working relationship or a workable relationship. And so I find that when I've handled these, these retaliation claims that OSHA's order for job restoration is presents maybe one of the most difficult elements of an OSHA order. I say OSHA order in quotes because this is now, in my opinion, I view these OSHA orders as merely an allegation a first allegation. It's a findings of an investigation. And that's that's reasonable. OSHA is certainly empowered to issue its findings under its investigation. However, remember that the next step commits an employer to go before an adjudicatory body, an administrative adjudicatory body at first. But nevertheless, before an administrative law judge, on the uh, presentation of competing evidence. And that is a very different matter than, than the OSHA investigations. The OSHA investigation is a very difficult step in the process for employers to manage because you, you do not know which witnesses have been spoken to. You do not know what evidence OSHA has. You don't know what evidence should be presented or how much rises to the level of sufficiency. But theoretically, In the the competition of evidence that you have in a hearing, in an adjudicatory hearing, you have the opportunity to hear evidence presented against the employer and then to present rebuttal evidence and then to present a countervailing case in chief. And this is important because it it should not be overlooked because employers, and I say this because employers sometimes see the OSHA finding and they believe that that is indicia of how the ultimate decision would Uh, be managed either before an administrative law judge or before an article three court. And that's just not so. I think that at this stage that we're at right now in the Wells Fargo case, an employer has to exercise patience, understand their own defenses and the strength of their own defenses and their weaknesses, and evaluate their case based on that, rather than alone based on the OSHA investigators findings or the Department of Labor findings, conclusions, Uh, if you don't have that kind of patience and ability to, to look at the long game and to the confidence to, to look at the weight of your own evidence as you understand the evidence, then the tendency is to look at this order and evaluate what elements of it should be negotiated or settled rather than to, to proceed forward with a, a hearing for an administrative law judge and then ultimately to an Article Three court if you believe it. that's that's the appropriate venue. That may be one of the most important takeaway items from understanding the Wells Fargo cases is is not only that at this stage, it's just an order, but that employers have a long way to go if they do believe that the evidence bears them out, that there was no retaliatory element to their, their job decisions like
1: separation. That's a great point, Manish. And so we wanted to next provide sort of a critical analysis of, of Wells Fargo's response here, um, essentially, you know, the, their actions in this case when it came to responding to the complaint. So the first thing we note is an internal memo, which stated that the employee would be encouraged to apply for other positions uh, available throughout the firm. But but this never happened. The employee was never offered those opportunities. As you mentioned, Manish, um, you know, the, the Wells Fargo claimed that this was under restructuring, but the employee was not given the same opportunities as, as other employees who were subjected to restructuring restructuring were, you know, the opportunity to sort of move move uh, laterally within the company, he was escorted out the door. And so, you know, we note that inconsistency here. And then also um, sort of some evidence of, of animus here. So the employee was allegedly, again, you know, pushed down the reporting structure after filing the initial complaint, and then escorted out of the office by private security, uh, not allowed to grab belongings, again, sort of these, you know, not common practice. Um, it is what the allegation was here on the side of the employee that Wells Fargo was taking these actions, you know, adversarially in response to the complaints that were filed.
0: Yeah, Taylor, I'd like to hear more from Wells Fargo about this idea that uh, private security was present and escorted to the employee out. There may be very good explanations for the discrepancies between one employee and another. Some employees are not provided with access to proprietary information and others are. Some employees have access to client relation, valued institutional client relationships and others do not. This employee did have relationships with competitors and with customers. And so there may be a bona fide reason for the discrepancy as to why he was escorted out as opposed to other employees. However, uh, I am certainly more concerned about this idea that when restructurings occur, others were provided an opportunity to burrow in elsewhere within the organization, and that, that as an institution, there is a record of trying to, to relocate employees rather than simply restructure them out the door, and that this employee was restructured out the door without that option. That, I think, is a fact alleged that, if true, would present, I think, greater difficulty for Wells Fargo, because that goes to the gravamen of the termination itself, rather than, for example, the, the idea that he was his reporting structure was changed, which didn't directly result in any maybe material loss the way that the separation did. So, so I think that Wells Fargo has this workout out for it, and employers generally ought to consider this idea of using restructuring. And Taylor, as you know, we handle a lot of, in our management side, employment practice, employment law practice, we handle a lot of separations, and we hear many, many times the impulse by employers or staff within the employer's management team to characterize separations as restructuring. And almost all of the cases, these are bona fide and sincerely intended descriptions of restructuring. In some cases, there are co-located with an actual restructuring, some performance problems. And I would advocate that if there's a performance problem, deal with the performance problem. First starting off with documenting the performance problem and, and don't characterize a performance separation as part of a restructuring, even if that is a contributing factor, when you are well uh, justified in characterizing performance terminations as performance terminations. To be precise and to be accurate is the first objective. And then to make sure that there isn't an opportunity for somebody to misinterpret intentionally or otherwise a restructuring as a a disguise for maybe some other motive is also a critical imp- Important factor to be considered when when handling restructurings and who to include in restructurings. Okay, well, Taylor, in light of the Wells Fargo case, let's talk about employers should do. Some of which we've been talking about along the way. Let's just go through it. I, I think that that you raised the first point of uh, the consistency quality of how employees are walked out the door and and how restructurings are handled.
1: Yeah, exactly. And then the second one is carefully evaluate any structural changes uh, that could be viewed as demotions or or moving an employee down the reporting structure.
0: Yeah, and this puts a dilemma upon employers who have whistleblowers that uh, in the interest of protecting the employee and moving them, an employee is very likely to complain that that move was retaliatory, even if the move was considered by the company to be anti-retaliatory. So it's a dilemma, but there are some avenues available to employers. I would convey to the employer the benefit of presenting an option to an employee as to whether he wants that move, whether he feels benefited from it. And then if he does elect that move to have him sign off on it, and if he declines the the change in reporting structure or the change in department, then, then don't force it upon him in the interests of trying to protect that employee. It may be forced upon them for other reasons, of course. Okay, Taylor, what else uh, do you think that this Wells Fargo case instructs our OSHA 3030 community about?
1: Yeah, so something that we say all the time is document all warnings, performance, conduct, and instances of insubordination. Certainly documenting the, the, the bona fide reasons for a termination is gonna be very important um, in, in these cases where an employee has has filed a complaint.
0: Yeah, I think that's right. If there's an adverse action and there's reasons, then they they need to have a, a record supporting them. The other thing I'd say about the Wells Fargo case in particular is that there was an internal investigative officer and then there was also a fraud unit investigation. And I think also internal. And I think that uh, what might be helpful is to have an in, independent person overseeing whistleblower cases, not just in the investigation, but maybe even in all later HR decisions that relates to that employee, like restructurings, discipline performance evaluations, to have an independent consultant. In the case of financial fraud investigations, an accounting firm, for example, or a law firm that handles retaliation work. And to have that sort of objective view, maybe not necessarily to conduct the internal investigation, but to provide some kind of oversight would give the, the organization additional protection. And and I'd note the obvious problem with internal investigations is that sometimes the internal investigator is also motivated to protect him or herself from retaliation. And so there's always the aspersion that can be cast upon the organization uh, that that the retaliatory motive that is being alleged in the case of the initial complainant is also going to apply where the internal investigators are concerned so whether true or not it is a difficulty that an employer has to overcome somehow well taylor that's it for the osha 3030 for september 2022 i should point out that this was pre-recorded on friday september 16th uh, for the wednesday episode of september 2022 all of our prior episodes are housed on our website at khlaw.com/osha3030 we are now in our 10th year so we have 9 full years of episodes We've never missed a month. So check them out. Some of them, a good handful of them relate to OSHA's whistleblower provisions or its own uh, whistleblower anti-retaliation investigatory authority. And then then a host of other subjects that are still of great value to this day. When you get the invitation for the next OSHA 3030, please remember to circulate it to at least three other people within your organization, folks in your office of general counsel, as well as safety and health professionals and at other organizations, office of general counsel and safety and health professionals. We'll rebroadcast this program within a day or so as a podcast on your favorite podcast uh, app, as well as at khlaw.com via YouTube. So you can also get it directly through YouTube. Make sure to link in with us if you haven't sent us an invitation on LinkedIn. That way we can stay in touch. The next episode of the OSHA 3030 will be held on Wednesday, 1 p.m. Eastern time, October 19th, 2022. Our sister programs, the Tosca 3030, REACH 3030, and FIFA 3030 are coming up soon. The Tosca 3030 and REACH 3030 already have scheduled dates, October 12th, 2022 at 1 p.m. and 1.35 p.m. Eastern, respectively. And on behalf of all the staff at Keller & Heckman that have made this episode possible, as well as my colleague, Taylor Johnson, and myself, I want to thank all of you here in the OSHA 3030 community for all of your support and for participating in this episode of the OSHA 3030. Until we see you again next month, stay safe.